The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you, Miss Meg, as always. Well, guys, I invite your attention, and we will be where the bulletin says, but I invite your attention to Isaiah chapter 3 this morning, Isaiah chapter 3. And uh, those of you who have been around my sermons know that I love PowerPoint. Uh, PowerPoint keeps me on track, and uh, it it hopefully keeps us all on track. But uh, today there's no PowerPoint. Uh, uh, God forbid the thought, I know, but there's no PowerPoint today, so we get to do this old school. Are you ready? So I'm going to sing and dance every now and then to make sure you're still awake, but uh, in all seriousness, there's no PowerPoint, and let me explain why. Uh, You know, we've been going, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through a topical study the last uh, about five weeks or so. What is a biblical man? What is a biblical woman? And uh, through that time, it seems like every time I write a sermon, God takes it and he, he tears it up and he throws it up and slam dunks it in the trash can and says, go and write it again. I feel like Jeremiah, when he, if you remember the story of Jeremiah, when he had the scrolls and he would dictate to his, uh, uh, his servant and his servant would go out and read it to the king and the king would take it. You remember the story? And the king would take it and he'd burn it. And, and he'd say, what do we do now? And Jeremiah would write down another one. Or kind of like Moses. You remember Moses when he got the Ten Commandments? He got so mad. Do you remember what he did to him? He, uh, he went, boom, and he did kind of a WWE style on the Ten Commandments, and he broke him in half. That's how I felt like about my first sermon as I wrote it this week. So what I'm going to offer today as I've been thinking through some of the topics, the areas we have not hit on so far about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is we're going to do what even in seminary they teach you is a bad thing to do. We're going to skip and jump around the Bible. If you're visiting with us, I just want to encourage you, this is not our norm. We usually take a passage or a book and we work verse by verse expositionally, uh, but I feel like this is what we need to do. So I, I thank you for that grace. Uh, I know I'm not a pretty face to look at, but you've got a pretty cool uh, setup back here you can stare at as well if you, if you need another image. But one thing that we know, friends, is that as we enter this topic, it is a tough topic. Uh, many of you and, and I have had conversations about what does it be, mean to be a biblical man, a biblical woman? And time and space does not afford us from the pulpit to cover everything. As often, we are giving you the tools by which you can live in this world as we do. So, you know, with that said, maybe you feel like the pianist, the professor, and the graduate student with this series. I mean, maybe this is how you feel. You've been condemned to die, but you have one final request. And if you're the pianist, you want, you want to play one more concert, you know. If you're the professor, you want one more lecture. But if you're the graduate student and you have one last request, you just tell us, say, please don't let me die before the professor gives another lecture. Please let me die before that happens. Maybe that's how you feel. Friends, we don't want to be the dead horse with this topic, but I do want to remind us it is so important how you view yourself as a biblical man, how you view yourself as a biblical woman doesn't just have effect here in this church it affects everywhere you go as the sent church that we are called to be in this world. So as we talk about the church of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that we are a body of people who've been transformed by God's power. 
the transformation isn't individual, but it's collective. And this topic touches every part of who you are. If you're young, it, it impacts how you view your family right now, even broken as it may be. If you're old, this impacts how you still are leading your husband or wife, if God has blessed you with that vitality in your older years. If you're somewhere in between, this affects you at every part of who you are. But the one key part of an evidence of the power of God in the local church is a Christ-centered family. And I'm so grateful, church, that we have so many people in this church who are living out what we have before us today. But one key part of that is the man, the husband. And husbands, let me be honest, we beat up on you pretty hard. I hope you feel those punches in, 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 in a good biblical sense, but I hope you also feel the balm of grace that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the family will climb no higher, gentlemen, let me remind you, than yourself. You yourself will have no greater impact on your family, the higher or the plateau of which you are. And there's a real sense in which the godliness of your family, men, depends upon you. Now, I know in many cultures, as we've talked about, women take first priority. She carries the load in the family. She carries the load in the church. And she has to do that many times because literally there are no men around. And friends, that is how sometimes it is. But men, we're going to talk to the ladies first today. And ladies, I uh, will speak to you directly. But men, let me remind you that as we go through and we, we hop around the Bible in a very different format than we're used to today, one thing we need to remember, men, is that it's your job to lead. Lead spiritually. Lead financially. Lead emotionally. Lead all those things that you can throw at it. Not for your benefit, but for the churches and for the benefit of our wives and our children, our future wives and whatever future children. So that's why I invite your attention to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Uh, again, I feel weird even giving this. If you know me, I'm type A and I, you know, we go point A to point B to point here to point there. But I want to walk you through some passages. And I don't take lightly that as God in his sovereign wisdom spiritually through the Spirit speaks, uh, not, as some, uh, you know, not as some extra biblical thing, but I believe God has directed the sermon in this way. So Isaiah chapter 3, and starting in verse 3, I, I just want to commentate on this as we go. And so Isaiah 3, it says this, uh, actually starting back in uh, verse 2, uh, we'll start in verse 1, why not? For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, and the captain of the fifty, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. Friends, I want you to notice here, as we enter back into this topic of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, that the judgment of God comes on a nation here. Judah's leaders are being judged, and he, God is about ready to take away two very vital ingredients, bread and water. Bread, and there's no jelly there, so it's bread and water, okay? That's it. He's going to take that away. The very things they need are being taken away from them. And he says in verse 2 and 3, he says also the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the commander of the 50, the, the magician and the counselor and the necromancer. No, water and bread are key to survival, but friends, as we enter back to this topic, I want you to remember that leadership is also key to survival for a people. 
Godly men, courageous men are totally essential to this equation. And in judgment, God says he's going to take those men away so that Israel will be left without them. Sounds like today, doesn't it? We see this today where, where are the men? There's a handful of men can destroy a country while other, or a handful of people can destroy a country while the men hide. But where are fathers and the families? Where are uh, kids and, and parents directing them? Uh, we give our kids over to society in so many ways. And as a parent, I'm learning this more and more each day that we give people over to our kids over to other people that don't even believe the same things that we believe. Where are the men in the church? If I'm not a believer, and, and ladies, I mean no disrespect by this, and I'm looking at the church, I would think Christianity is a religion for women. Men, have you ever thought about that before? Because the men are nowhere, and those who are there don't want to lead as God has called them to lead. So what does it bring? It brings the judgment of God. Where are the men? Look down at Isaiah 3 and verse 4, and I want to show you this as we move forward. He says, and God speaking, and I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Now skip down to verse 12, Isaiah chapter 3. And my people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they, will, they have swallowed up the course of pains on the course of your pass. Friends, we see the very thing happening in churches today. We see the same thing in our churches. What is needed today? Godly men, courageous men, men who will go against the culture, and dare I even say men who are able to stand up in churches and say, look, this is not right. We are called to lead and go against the greater grain of evangelical Christianity in North America. We need men to lead in the church. We need men to lead in their families, to lead their wives, to lead their children. We need godly men. Men, are you ready for that task? It sounds funny, doesn't it? But friends, the greatest judgment on Judah was that God had told them that women had been put in the place of men to serve as men should serve. Now let's remind ourselves, ladies, where we have been. We are e created, what? Equally? With distinct roles. Absolutely. This is not demeaning to, to women but men, it is a great reminder to us that God may raise up among us a godly heritage for ourselves. Men, before we get going, and I'm going to talk to the ladies here in just a minute. We're going to flip. But as, as, as God has impressed upon my heart in the scriptures this week, I want to remind ourselves of that. Men, we have such a high calling that God called it a judgment for women to lead in places that you, should, you and I should be leading. In the home, in the church, uh, at, at times in the workplace as God so leads. But men, I want you to keep that in mind. And we're going to speak to the men, but I, 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 just, I just want you to know that. In American Christianity today, for a man to stand up and rise up is often one of the greatest struggles for that man itself. And men, you may be scared to take that mantle. I acknowledge that. We acknowledge that. But that doesn't take away from what God has said. Nothing that we have learned over the last five weeks has led us to anything else but this. The same God who calls you is the same God that equips you. Men, you may not know how to lead spiritually. You may not know how to lead your family. And please believe me, I'm, I'm the least of those areas. But I want you to know there is greater grace for you in Jesus Christ. 
Men, there is greater grace for you when you have failed. There is greater grace for you when you don't feel worthy. There is greater grace from you when you just say, you know what, I know that's a command, Darren, but I just don't want to do it. There's greater grace for you. And men, hold that thought. Because ladies, what I'd like to do is say a word to you. Because ladies, where we're going to go in First Peter just briefly today is going to remind us of how men are deflated in that and how you as ladies can both encourage and both challenge them to rise up to the occasion that Isaiah is talking against. As I said, odd sermon today from Darren's perspective, but will you jump with me down to First Peter chapter 2? First Peter chapter 2, and I want to speak a word to the ladies. You know, I was at the library at, at the seminary because we were dropping off Simeon the other day at school, and I was up at the third, uh, giving away my secret spots now, but I was up on the third floor, and boy, it was so cold in there. And I was typing away at the original message, and God, I, I just cannot tell you. It's just like God came through with a great big red, red X and went, so I don't know. As you're turning, I'm giving you just a couple seconds there to get to First Peter 2. I don't know what the Lord may have in this. I don't know what God may speak to you through this. And I'm not saying he's going to speak anything more than what he has for you. He will speak to you some way. But I pray your ears are open to this. As a man, I need to look at this both from my wife's perspective biblically and also from a man's perspective biblically. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. And, you know, I love, and this is a good history lesson for us. I love Bibles. I love that we have numberings in Bibles. But sometimes they cause us to read each chapter like an individual book, doesn't it? There's a heading, there's something you see, and because of that, we miss the flow of what the author is saying. So I want to read 1 Peter 1, 21 through 25, and then go into chapter 3. 1 Peter 1, 21 through 25, it says this. Actually, chapter 2, I apologize, 2.21. And it says this, that, For to this we've been called, because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself, Christ did, to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in the body on a tree, that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep without a shepherd, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of your lives, of your witness. We see there in verse 21, if you have your book open, 1 Peter 2.21, that Christ gave us an example how we ought to respond to people when they do not treat us as they ought to. And you see in verse 22, what did Christ do? It said, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now notice he's talking about the words of Christ here out of his mouth. He didn't utter anything that was wrong toward the very people who were doing everything against him wrong. Go down to verse 23, and again it tells us that while he's suffering, he spoke no threats, but he kept entrusting himself, Christ did, to the very one who would watch over his soul. Then why did Paul, or sorry, Peter here, all of a sudden say in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be submissive to your husbands. How do you go from Jesus on the cross, suffering, dying for the sins of the world, to, with respect, wives? Does that sound a little odd to anyone else? 
Have you ever talked to someone before and you're like chasing rabbits and you talk with them and they're over here one minute and they're over there the next and, and, and they boom, 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 boom. What is that connection? Ladies, do you see it? It's very, very important. Christ is suffering because our people are being disobedient to the word, but he commits no sin. There's no sin in his mouth. He doesn't revile, he doesn't threaten, but he entrusts himself to God. And then Peter comes back and he says, look, ladies, to be a biblical woman, you have husbands, some of you. And aren't some of your husbands disobedient to the word, especially those without Christ? He tells them, do the same thing. Win them without a word. He says, ladies, don't sin with your mouth. Don't utter any threats. Don't revile, don't argue, don't tear down, and don't fight with them. But, ladies, we would never do that, would we? (laughs) Ladies, sometimes the greatest threat to biblical manhood in your own life is your very own tongue. You wound your husband with your tongue. You quarrel. You always have a better opinion. You're always pointing out things that he does wrong. And instead of letting God be the instrument of change in his life, you have made him and your tongue an instrument for the devil and pushing him further away. Now, I don't want you to laugh about this, but look back at verse 1. Look at this says, guys. He's telling wives to win their husbands without ever saying a word. Ladies, how much more do you talk than men? Ladies, I love you. But it's true. How does he connect Isaiah 3 to 1 Peter 2? How does that connect? Ladies, sometimes... You know, I had a friend that said it this way and talking to him about the sermon. He said, when a woman gets in an argument with her husband, she's almost always has the sharper tongue. And it does nothing to conform him to the image of Christ. It just tears him to pieces and causes him to lose hope. Ladies, let us remind ourselves that you were equally made in God's image. But may I encourage you, dear ladies, dear saints, dear friends, that the Proverbs remind us that, that a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping The Bible tells us that it's better to live in the attic or in the desert or to be at work or to be with his friends than to be around a wife who constantly argues with her husband over everything that he does. Now, men, be very careful with those references. You're going to go home and say, wife, you're like a dripping faucet to me right now. (laughs) Be careful. You will not win him with that, though, ladies. You will not draw him. You won't draw him to Christ by winning any arguments. Now, I want you to know, Romans 12 tells us that it says in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right inside of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Now notice that even in Romans it says, leave room for the wrath of God. Do you know, I'm an old medieval history lover, and you know those big old castles, right? Some of you have been to those big old castles. Aaron, I see in the back. Aaron, you and I have been to England in those big old castles, and they open those drawbridges. You've seen this, right? They open the drawbridges, and they can almost link arms. 15, 20 soldiers at a time, standing arm to arm, can go through the door. But when you get to the second floor, what happens? That door starts to shrink. And it becomes about as wide as a normal, average-sized person. It's super small. Why do they do that? Here's the reason. If you have an army attacking your castle and they have the power to break through your doors, they're going to get in there. They're going to run people up to that second floor. But you know what's so smart about those castles? 
they could take one little puny guy like myself with a spear, and as they're coming up those stairs, they, the little puny guys like me can fight them all off. They're going up to the castle. It doesn't matter how big the army is on the first floor. The stairwell is only so wide, and they can only fit so many up. They can only go up one at a time, and, and at that time, that guy just stabs them down and gets them back down. Ladies, your husband, literally or otherwise, is in his castle, and you're on the outside. You're mad. You're going to straighten him out. Boy, you've come with 15, 20 of your best friends, whoever they are, and you're going to straighten that, that guy out. You knock down that first floor door, and you run up to that, and he runs up to the second floor, and he stands in the doorway with a spear, and you come up there with a sword, a double-edged sword coming right out of your mouth, and you're fighting him, you're arguing with him, you're telling him this and that, and the whole time you're doing that, you're saying, Lord, help me, Lord, change my husband, Lord, I pray for ours, why don't you help me with this guy? You know what the Lord says? He says, get out of the way. <laughs> I'm here. He says, give me place, but you don't. You just keep fighting and arguing and telling him how bad he is and keep telling him all the things he does wrong and all the while you're praying and God says, get out of the way. You can make the choice. You can fight with him or I can fight with him. But only one of us can be there at a time. It's like that second floor stair of a castle. And if you want to change your husband by arguing with him, then good luck, sister. That'll be your marriage for the rest of your life. Or you can do what God says and give him room to work on your husband. And he says, put your sword away. Look back at 1 Peter 3, verse 2. He says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a heart with a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious inside God. Ladies, can I encourage you, if you're married, if you're not married, if you're even a widow, and you want to change a man's heart, it doesn't mean your opinion's not valuable. It is. It doesn't mean that you don't need to call out your husband. Sometimes you do. But you're not going to win your husband by tearing him down. You'll win him with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I know, and I probably want to see this movie, Wonder Woman just came out, Right? And it seems like every movie we watch these days is about a lady who is taking authority and, and winning and doing all these great things. And that is not all wrong. But ladies, by honoring your husband, even one when he does not necessarily deserve to be honored, by showing him the grace of God, you're showing him what Jesus has done for you. Now women, this is true, and I know it's true in the Bible, and I've seen it in my own life. Let's say I come home one day, and uh, it's been one of those days, and there's no dinner on the table, the house looks messed up, and I've had a really bad day. Whatever it is in ministry, it's just been a bad day. And this, this never happens. My wife is prepared uh, all the time, even with three kids, but I'm just giving you an example. And I come home, and I say, Natalie, where's the, what, what's going on? I've been working all day. You know what? And I, I mean, the house is a mess, and there's no food, and I'm hungry. Natalie. She is so mad at me when I say that. Husbands, you've never been in this boat before, have you? And when she does that, the battle is on, and she feels, I, I feel totally justified in being angry, and she feels totally justified in being angry. But if I come in the house with that attitude and say, what's going on? I'm home. I'm here. The king has arrived. Let me in. I'm hungry. The house is a mess. And I act like I shouldn't. And my wife comes up and says, Darren, I'm really sorry. No, really, she says, I'm sorry. 
She says, you know, there's been a lot of problems with the kids. You know, we've had some problems with the sisters in church, and I'm not feeling well. I'm feeling sick. Darren, just give me some time. I'll try and get things in order. If she does that, you know what happens to me? I go outside. I get a big stick made out of oak and a big baseball bat, and I go like this. I start hitting myself on the head for being a dummy that I often am. I'm totally ashamed because my heart is broken, because I've assumed something in my wife that is not true. I realize I've acted like a fool. I ask for God to forgive me. I go and ask my wife to forgive me, and then I try to help her. Do you see the difference in those two scenarios, ladies? The difference of honoring your man as he leads in the home, Christian or not, is that the Holy Spirit works through an obedient woman that has a gentle and quiet spirit. She gets out of the way and allows God to fight for her. When your wife starts acting right, men, you better start straightening up. God's either going to take you out if you don't straighten up or your wife might. Do you see that, ladies? Brother, thank you for amen in that. And I don't mean that just because I said it, but it's very, very true. And you know it, brother, because we're both in that. We're both, we're both guys. Let's just say that. We know that to be very true. Every time, ladies, you respond with evil, it does nothing. I mean that. When you say, uh, and you say, when I respond with kindness, it doesn't do anything either. Well, you know what? God didn't say do it because he would fix the problem immediately. He said do it because, ladies, that's what he said to do. That's what he commanded. And if you do it long enough, it's going to begin to work. You know, my wife has so much power over me. As she comes to me with those beautiful eyes and a gentle and quiet spirit, I'm going to do almost everything that she says, except root for Oklahoma Sooners, and that might be the only thing I don't give her grace for, but that is what it is. <laughs> when she has a gentle and quiet spirit, it's unbelievable, unbelievable as God directs how that changes me as a man as I'm leading in the home. That doesn't mean I'm above my wife. Guys, we're created equally with distinct roles, but let's say... Uh, you know, you know, for many of you, let's say your husband has learned a couple things through this series. Let's say he goes home and he's excited. He wants to start a Bible study with you. He wants to get back to the Word with you. It's been years since you prayed together. And he realizes that he's going to do it and he does it for three days and then he completely biffs it up and he misses it for a week. And you come in there and you say, I knew you wouldn't carry this out very well because this is what you've always done. Congratulations, you just nailed another coffin in your marriage, instead of saying, I'm really proud of you, you tried, is there any way I can help you? Ladies, do you see that difference? Being encouraged, why do we always think we are always supposed to act like Jesus to other people who are not in our family, but we, we should act like Jesus with our wives and our husbands first and with our own children? Ladies, I pray that you have such power to know that you can make your home a joy. Maybe this isn't even talking about, this is not talking about being barefoot and pregnant and not working outside the home. God, God love us for, for having those jokes and thoughts. But friends, if God has called you ladies to be over your home, then realize that you're doing it for the Lord and He can transform your power, your family through the power of a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me ask you a question if you've been married for a while. You've probably done a lot of arguing. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. I don't know who said it loudest, but we'll find you afterwards. Has it helped anything? Ladies, has it made your husband a better man in God? Has it made your marriage more beautiful? What kind of example did that set for your, your daughter? Or what kind of example did it set for your son? Some women would say, well, even my children don't submit to me. And I ask you, do you submit to your husband as he's called to submit, you've called to submit to him? Well, my children complain all the time. Well, do you complain all the time? Marriage is our opportunity to act out Christ's love for the church. That's what you need to know. 
When I love my wife, my children can say, this is how Christ loved the church. When my wife submits to me, gentlemen, as, a, as she ought to, not unwillingly, not domineeringly, not because she's less than me, but as God designed it to be, when she submits to me with a gentle and quiet spirit, my children will say eventually, oh, well, that's how the church is supposed to treat Jesus is how daddy's treating mommy and mommy's treating daddy. But men, let's be real. We fail and we fail quite often, don't we? We really, really do. We know we're not movie stars. We know we're not strong. We know we don't make a lot of money. We know by the world standards, we're really quite nothing. We're just an average Joe. But it's helpful not to hear the same thing, ladies, from your wife. This is not, this is the man that God's given you. Bless his heart. This is the man that God has given you. And although God loves you as a daughter, he also loves his son, who he created in his, in his image. He loves his son. Wives, you can help form his son, your husband, your future husband into a better man, or you can chase him away far from the things of God and leave him miserable. Ladies, let me remind you, your husband is going to fail you. That does not mean if he fails, there's just a blanket pass. But at the same time, I have failed as a husband. Wives, you failed as wives before. But if we adopt the attitude, the mind of Christ, things will change. You see, your greatest problem is my greatest problem. We are not like Jesus, and that is where the problem becomes. The gospel reminds us that, we, that we're not like Jesus, and we can become more and more like Jesus to help solve the problem. Ladies, make a commitment. In the church, men, you should commit one to another to help one another, to love one another, to, to be better husbands, to be better fathers, but wives, you ought to make a commitment one to another. There may be ladies in this, in this sanctuary who are struggling to live out what it means to be a biblical woman. Some of you older ladies, by Titus 2, will get there next week, ought to help each other become better wives and husbands, and you're doing that. But ladies, may I remind you today that the greatest arsenal you have is by walking under God. That's what the big idea says. And it's 25 minutes in this sermon. I haven't even gotten to the big idea yet, guys. To all single, abandoned, heartbroken, widowed, divorced, or happily married women, may I say this, and this is what's coming straight out of 1 Peter's. We're not breaking it down. We're doing more of a devotional exposition. But may your first and ultimate love be in Jesus I don't know what your last husband did to you. And ladies, this is not a blanket pass. If you're under abuse, you need to come talk to myself. You need to talk to our deacons. We, you don't need to stay in that abuse, in that situation. We need to work through that. But ladies, if your husband is just a big doofus, like most guys of us are trying to lead you in Christ, encourage him in that, even if he fails miserably. And oh boy, he's going to fall flat on his face a lot of times. But grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Friends, I hope you feel that today. That's not the whole sermon. I don't want to anticlimactic you, but ladies, I do want to encourage you with that. Ladies, you're so valuable in the sight of God. Ladies, if you see men leading in this church, may I say a special word to you? Would you encourage them with that? Would you say, brother, I'm praying for you? Not because they need to be built up, but you never know what your encouragement may do. Older ladies, you have young single ladies in the church, some teenagers, would you, would you pray for them, as many of you have been for so long and so faithfully continue to, that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would know, these young ladies, that a, uh, a magazine cover does not mean that's who they are, just because that's what 
I'm going to show my age here. That's what J-Lo looks like. She's like 50 years old now. Uh, that's what J-Lo looks like, or that's what uh, 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 that girl who used to be on Disney, I don't know her name, uh, you know, that, that's what she is, then that's what I have to be. Miley, is that her name? Miley Cyrus, or whatever her name is now. Young ladies, can I encourage you to don't be afraid to look at the lives and partner up with these older ladies in this congregation? Young married ladies, there's so much wisdom in this church, so much godly wisdom in this church that it's, it, we could write a book. I, I, I kid Betty, Betty Dewey on Tuesday. I tell her, Betty, you need to put that in your book. You need to put that in your book. She said no one would read it. Ladies, I bet you there's so much wisdom in this church that God has given through First Peter, through Isaiah 3, that God would bless you. But ladies, may your first and ultimate love be in Jesus Christ. May that be where your heart lies. We've got about 10 or 12 minutes left in our usual time. Will you go over to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. Friends, that was just the introduction. Amen? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. And, I, and we'll probably carry some of this over to next week. You know, I, 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 this is not in my notes. I didn't prepare to say this. But I, I hope you understand as we look at these things as pastors that we don't do this lightly. We don't come up here and, and get joy out of speaking these words because these words may sting. These words may sting deeper than we see on the surface. Even the Lord knows only about them. Friends, we don't speak these words to sting. We speak these words because we want our church to be a place where especially men and women are brought together under what God asked them to do. That's why we do this. And so as you hear these words, friend, I, I'm not trying to step on your toes, but if God has done that, then praise the Lord. That's called the Holy Spirit smackdown. That's what they call it. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, and uh, one of those sorts of things. But as we go through this, I want you to pray. Lord, I, you may say, Darren, I'm not sure I'm there yet. That's okay. By God's grace, you are what you are, but don't settle there. Keep pushing on. Don't give up. You will reap the fruit in the proper harvest time. But Ephesians chapter 5, will you join me in standing? This is your mid-seventh inning stretch exercise for the sermon. Ephesians chapter 5. told you, we just got out of the introduction, guys. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. God's word says this this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present with the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, and in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray as we close out the next 10 to 12 minutes. Father... We pray this morning, pray from Isaiah 3, Lord, that the judgment of Judah would not be upon our church, that men would rise up, not to be Rambos or John Waynes, but men would rise up with the most humble, bold, 
compassionate, merciful leadership within our church. Father, but I pray equally, created in God's image the same, that ladies would embrace the role of Father, not playing second fiddle or the third wheel or whatever it is, but Father, they would embrace the role uniquely called to them by your word. Father, as we look at this briefly, as we carry it over to next week, may you be glorified. Father, you know the work that needs to happen in this church. Father, we don't just say, let go, let God. That's not biblical. Father, we need to do work, most of all in our own hearts and our own families. But Lord, help us to remember that you are the mover and the shaker. You are the author and finisher of our faith. It is you who's forming us. We cannot save ourselves, Lord. We cannot sanctify ourselves. But by grace, may you lead us practically to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Father, we thank you for these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. With these remaining moments I have with you as we introduce this topic, then there is a real sense again in which you are to lead your home, that everything that happens in your home and happens in your churchmen is on your shoulders. And as I say you, I don't want that to be the collective, you're safe in a crowd, you. I'm speaking to you, second person singular, you, gentlemen, you, sir. There is a sense in which, as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, that if we are a Christian, then how can we say that a woman should submit to us if today we are the ones who are not leading as we should? Friends, if we are Christian, we also believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I didn't bring this up in recent weeks, but I want to mention this. And we believe that they are one. We believe in one God in three persons, right? Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. But there's one God in three persons. I, I joke with uh, Andy Nisley, who's one of the smartest guys I know back there, about we need to have a biblical math class, and you figure that out. How can there be one God in three persons? It's mind-blowing, and that's okay. Submit to the mystery. Worship God as He is. And we believe that the Father is equal to the Son, and the Son is equal to the Spirit, and the Spirit is equal to the Father. But yet the Son submitted to the Father, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Is the Son less God because he submitted to the Father? No. He's fulfilling the role God gave to him. He's fulfilling a role he took upon himself. And also in our marriages, as we know that's the pattern of God himself, I'm closer to my wife than any other human being on this planet. We have different roles. I lead my family, but how do I lead? Men, I want to speak about this. The Bible talks very clearly about two types of leadership in the home. There is a type of Caesar and there is the type of Christ. Caesar led for himself, his own glory, and whatever he could bring. But Christ, knowing that he had all authority, wrapped himself in a towel, John 13, and he washed the disciples' feet. When a man hears he has authority to lead his family, so many men who don't have muscular chests like myself stick it out and say, hear me roar, woman. And I mean that. We may not say that, men, but when we hear sermons like this, we're thinking that. And that is, they think their family's supposed to wait on them. They're the king and they're all under his feet, so come rub my feet and make them smell good. Men, that is the way of Caesar, not of the way of Christ. To have authority in the home is to use the authority in the service of God for his glory. It's to use your authority in the service for your wife for his glory. To use the service to our children for their glory. Friends, that's what it's all about. What is the purpose of marriage? 
is the purpose of marriage to find someone who's like you so you can enjoy the same interests and put e-harmony to shame and, and all those great things? No, the purpose of marriage is to conform you to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Let me remind you at Romans 8, 28 and 29, we spoke on this last year, but I want to rehash this. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And that's where the Hallmark card stops, by the way. The Hallmark card usually doesn't include for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, Christ, would be firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Everything that has happened will happen in your life has a very specific purpose. What is that purpose? It's to make you more like Jesus. That's where all the prosperity preachers are absolutely long. They say it's to prosper you, to give you an easy life, to meet all your sensual desires, but that is a lie. The one great purpose of marriage is that you would be more like Christ. We don't like that. That doesn't preach very well in most churches but that is what it is. In most cases, men, the Lord will give you a wife who's strong in the areas where she must be strong, but he will also give you a wife who's weak in the areas where you want her to be strong. You want her to cook mom's meatloaf like mom cooked her meatloaf, but the last time she cooked meatloaf, she set off all the fire alarms. Why does God do that? Because he hates you? No. (laughs) That junk theology out of there, he does that in those simple day-to-day things. And some of you, I'm serious, some of you, you may say, I can't love my wife because she didn't cook like mama used to cook. And you may never say that to her, you may never say it to anyone else, but deep inside, that's how you feel. And that's not true of my wife, by the way, but that may be true of how you feel. Why does God give you someone that is opposite of you in the things you think they should be strong on? Because, friends, it shows us that we are not Jesus Christ. The great purpose of marriage is that you would know and be like Jesus. When you think about Jesus, what do you think about? You think about his unconditional love, don't you? Think about his mercy, his grace. But when I think about being conformed to the image of Christ, this is what I think about. How can you learn unconditional love if you're married to a woman that meets all your conditions? Ever thought about that? How can you learn mercy if your wife knows no weaknesses? I mean, gentlemen, we can flatter our wives all day, but let's be honest, your wife does not, your, your wife disappoints you sometimes, and ladies, doubly fold, your husband definitely disappoints you sometimes. How can you learn grace if, by gra- if your grace, if your wife always deserves the best from you? Dear sister, the same is true of you. You're married to a man with many flaws, if you haven't already discovered that. And sometimes that very thing you most want him to be, he's not. Why? For the very same reasons. The purpose of your marriage is to conform you to be like Jesus Christ. And as a man leads in ways that are uncomfortable culturally for him to lead spiritually, to lead in the ways compassionately and humbly, that's going to conform you to Christ. Ladies, it's going to conform you to Christ by submitting to your husbands, as the Bible says to. Not in ways that are domineering, not in ways that are sinful. We've talked through those things, but in ways as he leads, you follow him even when things don't turn out how you want them to, or even when you see things you most want you aren't getting, that's where you learn to be more like Christ, to practice unconditional love, to practice grace with each other, and to practice mercy. When a man begins to practice these things, gentlemen, it's amazing what that does to a wife and transforms his family. Let me give you an example, all right? Almost every time I'm gone, I'm getting ready to leave for two days, and, and uh, I'm getting ready to go on a trip. I get to go to 160 Phoenix, and... 
bless my wife, she's at home with three kids, four, four, almost three, going on 37 is that middle child, and Seth, who just smiles all the time and spits up. I'm leaving my wife with that in tow. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get up at the red-eye flight at 5.30 in the morning, get back about, a, I don't know what time, 9 o'clock on Tuesday, do that sort of thing. And I'm going to get in my car, drive home from the airport. I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to get there, and I'm, this is what I think should happen. Men, and if, you're, if you don't believe this should happen, or if you've never thought this should happen, this is, well, be honest. I'm going to let my wife open the door, and she's going to throw flowers at me, you know. <laughs> the king's home. He's home. Woo! He's home. And she's going to announce to all the kids, the great warrior has arrived at home. Get out of your cribs. Come on. Come on, guys. And they're going to look, and she's going to take me to my favorite chair, which I don't even know where that is because our house is full of toys and all sorts of things. <laughs> and all's going to be quiet because dad has been gone for two days talking with other Baptist pastors who talk all day and all these things. I love them. And I want to tell you something, friends, that's never happened once in my whole life. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's never happened to me. My wife is an Oklahoman, born and bred. She's a Sooner. And something you need to know about Sooner women is when they start talking, they start moving their heads, something like this, you know? And you know when you're in trouble, right? You start wishing you'd been killed at that, that church meeting when you went out to Phoenix in the heat. When my wife opens the door, this is the real situation. She looks at me with that look, and she says, your kids. <laughs> if you don't get here right now, I'm going to take them all out, and you know what she means. You know, uh, she says, you know, Darren, you've been having a good time, and, and, and get in there and be their dad. I'm going on a vacation right now. <laughs> That's how it is. And at that moment, I'm faced with the reality that my wife is not meeting all my conditions. Where are the flowers? Where's the favorite seat? Where's the warrior chant that comes in from my, my kids? I'd rather have fight Godzilla than fight her in that moment. She's angry, and I mean that. Now, why is this happening to me? God, this isn't what I signed up for. I married this one. This isn't what I signed up for, God. My wife is a godly woman, and God could have given her the grace she needed to answer the door and throw flowers at me and rub my feet and all those great things, but he didn't. It's in those times, friend, all those prayers that you may have prayed dangerously, Lord, make me more like Jesus, that it really becomes real, doesn't it? He's answering your prayers. The question is, I'm going to end with this. The question is, husband, wife, are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to say, man, Darren, this biblical manhood stuff, this biblical womanhood stuff, that sounds like some puritanical thing from all those old dead guys you like to read, and it may be true. Men, are you willing to die to yourself to love your wife as you ought to love her? Are you willing to deal with the problems, and are you willing to be like Jesus for her when she doesn't want you to be Jesus for her? She just wants you to be you. Do you know what God is doing here? He's given you the chance to show your wife how Jesus loves his bride. He's given you the honor to show your kids the love of Christ. This is why being a father is so important. Everyone is watching. What will dad do? What will he do? You know, people think it's radical to go preach on a street corner. Friends, I, I'm not trying to boast. I'm trying to show you how much... God it hopefully has grown me. I preached on the street corners of Westport down there for almost 10 years every Friday night to every bar, H H Henry's Bar and Stools, uh, good grief, I don't know what else is down there anymore, Kelly's, uh, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you know Kelly's down there. You know all these places, I preached in front of those things. That's not radical. 
What's radical are men and women who are willing to say, get out of here culture, get out of here GQ magazine, get out of here whatever expectations are on me from TV, and I'm just going to be a faithful man of God how he's called me to be faithful. I'm going to be a faithful woman of God how he's called me to be faithful. That's radical. Any Joe Blow can go get a, a bullhorn and start preaching on Westport and Pennsylvania. Trust me, they did for years. But it takes serious courage, men, for you to lead as God's called you to lead, no matter what age you are. Women, it takes serious courage for you to submit to your husband as God calls you to submit, even if it's been your whole life that you haven't. told you this was going to be scatterbrained today. But would you remember that everything God has brought your way whether you are preparing for marriage, whether you're a young teen, whether you're newly married, whether you've been married for 15, 20 years, 40, 50 years, is to make you more like Christ. Are you willing to step on that boat today? Will you pray with me as we close? Father, I pray today, the big idea spoke to the ladies, but Father, it's also true of men, that our greatest passion, our greatest desire would be to know Christ more. Father, it's easy to say that in some preacher voice, but it's one thing to live that. Father, I pray that everything we can't speak from from the pulpit, that men would disciple men, that ladies would disciple ladies, that men would rise up in our church to lead in ways they've been called to lead. Father, that ladies would lead in areas they've been called to lead, both equal, both distinct, but both prayerfully honoring you, glorifying you above all things. Father, we don't live in Mayberry anymore. We don't live in some perfect bubble world where leave it to beaver. Father, even in the 21st century, that's never been part of it. Father, we don't desire that. Father, through our messy lives, through our messy relationships, through our sin-filled desires and sin-filled thoughts, may you be king of every home in this world. Whether that's a widower, that's a widow, a long-married couple, whether that's a teenager here who's, who's, whose family or life is broken, whether that, whatever it is, Lord, be Lord. You are Lord over all. Father, may we simply submit to that lordship. And as we do, both here in the family, in the church, wherever it is, that you would receive praise. Father, it's all about you. Father, I pray for Tower View that we're not known for our great programs, our great whatever. We are known as men and women of God who want nothing more than to be faithful stewards of the responsibility as men and women that you've given us. That's our heart. Father, if it's not our heart, may you change it corporately, may you change it individually. Father, you are worthy. You are holy. I pray for anyone here who's just beating themselves up on the back just because they are, they're feeling like they failed time and time again. Father, thank you that when you nailed, your son was nailed on the cross, it is finished. We praise you that every failure was taken on that cross. Father, there's no shame here. There's no guilt here. Father, there should be repentance here, yes. But Father, thank you that even though consequences may exist for our lackadaisicalness, that your grace still covers a multitude of sins and empowers us by your spirit to live it out. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus that bore our wrath on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.